We are in Romans chapter 11 this morning. And in our passage in Romans chapter 11, we've finally arrived, arrived at the focal point of Paul's message regarding Israel in these three chapters that we've been looking at, 9 through 11. All men must be saved through faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. They must come to believe that they are a sinner. They must stand condemned before, uh, or that they stand condemned before a holy God because of their sin. They must understand that. This is true for everyone who has ever lived. No one escapes this truth, regardless of who they are. It doesn't matter what nation they're a part of. It doesn't matter who they're descended from. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in that regard. The penalty for sin must be paid. There is no way around that. This is what God's justice, what God's righteousness demands, payment for sin. If every person is a sinner, which they are, and God demands payment for every sin, that means that every person must provide that payment. What payment is required? Is it works? Is it penance? No. It's death. Death is what's required for sin. That's the payment that must be met. So the question then comes up, who's going to pay that? It must be one of two people. There's only two options. I either pay it or someone pays it for me. Option one, I pay it myself. For me to pay it, that means that I continue in my sin and I continue um, in my transgressions against God and I spend eternity separated from God in an eternal hell. That is an option, living under the wrath and condemnation of God. Unfortunately, that's the option that most people take. Or option number two, Someone pays it for me. Now, who can do that? Can I get my neighbor to do that? Can I tell my neighbor, you need to pay my sin for me? No, because he owes that same debt that I do. There's no one else that doesn't owe that debt. He's in the same boat that I am. He is guilty of sin. He stands condemned before God, and he has his own payment to worry about. So is there another option? Yes, Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-man who never stood condemned. He was never guilty of sin. He has already made the payment, a payment that satisfied the wrath of God, a payment made for anyone and everyone to have that payment applied to our account in our stead. All that we need to do is accept that gift by faith. Believe in what he has already provided. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been seeing in this section, The Jews, as a nation, rejected that. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected Christ when he came. They rejected the gift that he provided for them. It is this tragedy that Paul has been discussing in Romans 9 through 11, that although they had every privilege, they should have known better. Christ came to them. He came to his own people. He provided this For them, they have stumbled over the very Messiah for which they had been so desperately searching. They had been waiting for their Messiah to come, and when he came, they stumbled over him instead of accepting him. So what happened? Well, it's what he said back up in verse 11 of this chapter. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, Paul said. The nation of Israel has been placed under the discipline of God, and God has turned his attention instead to the Gentile nations. The unbelieving nation of Israel has been broken off from the place of favor 
of God, and in their place the Gentiles have instead been grafted in. It is now the Gentiles who are the focus of God's favor. This is what we saw last time with the example that Paul used of the olive tree. The tree itself was the focus of God's favor, the focus of his salvation blessings. Those who are in the olive tree are the ones that he is focusing his salvation efforts on in the world. The Jews, as we saw in that passage, were the natural branches to that tree, the branches that that flowed out of the root, grew out of that. The root was the promises given to Abraham. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant, and by extension, the promises that came down from that initial covenant that was given to Abraham. The Davidic, the Palestinian, the new covenants flow out of that. Down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the fathers of Israel. The nation of Israel was the olive tree naturally. As God made promises to Abraham, it started with him. He promised him land. He promised him seed. He promised him blessing. It grew out of him. The nation of Israel grew out of him. And God's work in salvation was focused in and around the descendants of Abraham. But as we saw, Israel's sin meant that they were removed from that blessing, stripped away from the tree. Now, that doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. But it signified that God had turned away from them. They were no longer the focus of his blessings. They were no longer the focus of his work of salvation. So who is? The Gentiles, the wild branches that were grafted in in their place. The Jews were stripped away. The Gentiles then were grafted in. Today, the church is predominantly Gentile in composition. There is still a remnant from Israel. doesn't mean that no Jews are being saved today. There is still a remnant from Israel that is being saved. But by and large, salvation blessings are focused today on the Gentile nations. It's not hard to see this today. When you think of the church, think of those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does your mind instantly go to, oh, those are the Jews? Not today it doesn't. In fact, they are usually the last group that you associate with Christianity. They are known as being diametrically opposed to Christianity. I doubt that anyone would have a hard time believing that the church of Jesus Christ was composed primarily of Gentiles. Gentiles are now in that position of favor. So the natural follow-up question to that is, When we look at that situation and we look at the fact that Gentiles are the ones being saved, the follow-up question is, does that mean that the Jews are out? Does this mean that God is now done with them completely and finally? They had their shot and they're done. And I would hope by this time, anyone that's been in here for the last several weeks knows how I'm going to answer that question. No, no, no. It does not mean that. There is going to be a time of restoration for the nation of Israel. God has promised this many times and in many different ways. Paul even said back up in verse 12 of Romans 11, If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, that blessing has come to the Gentiles instead, how much more will their fulfillment be? Then will the time of Israel's fulfillment be? When they are restored, this is alluding to a coming restoration of the nation of Israel. 
If the Gentiles are blessed now, when Israel is under God's discipline for their sin, how much more will the blessing be when God restores Israel as his people? He said in verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Remember when we went over this verse a couple of weeks ago. This isn't Israel rejecting and accepting something. This is them being rejected. This is them being accepted. This is talking about their current rejection, the state that they're in today, and their coming acceptance. They will be alive from the dead. They will once again be God's people. They will be the dry dry bones from the valley that are brought back to life. And so we came to verse 23 in our last lesson and saw the end result of the olive tree analogy that Paul was using. He said in verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. And again, the natural branches is Israel. It was their tree in the first place. God has the power to graft them in again. They will be brought back into that position of favor. As cultivated olive branches grafted back into their own tree where they truly belonged in the first place. This is the future of Israel brought back into the place of favor and blessing with God, where God will once again focus His salvation efforts upon them, and this will lead to their final restoration. It is this restoration that Paul deals with, starting in verse 25. All this that he's been talking about in chapter 11 thus far has led us to this point. Why did salvation come to the Gentiles? To make the Jews jealous. Why was Paul's ministry to the Gentiles magnified, right? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He went to the Gentiles to preach to them, but he said that magnified his ministry. What magnified that? The fact that he could help win some of his brethren, the Jews, to Christ by making them jealous. We need to keep in mind and never lose sight of the fact throughout Scripture that the plan of God throughout the Bible starting from Genesis 12 on, is centered around the nation of Israel. The benefits that we receive as Gentiles, they all come through that plan that God has worked through the nation of Israel. The sooner that we recognize that, the sooner we come to realize that God cannot be done with Israel. He has not gone back on His promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, as we come to verse 25 of chapter 11, it's this promise of restoration that Paul is going to deal with. In this section, Paul is going to reveal a mystery. And that mystery is something that unless God had given it to Paul to reveal, it would not have been understood. But he has revealed it, and Paul did write it down here in the book of Romans. And now as believers living in the 21st century, we have the privilege of reading and understanding and studying this today. It's this section of Scripture that puts the parameters around the church age 
gap that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about that back in our study of Daniel last year as well. We're going to see how long this gap is going to last and what must take place before it's finished. And God turns his attention back to his chosen nation of Israel. So look with me at verse 25. And we're going to read the next three verses here. And I'm going to be up front with you. These are the three verses that we're going to cover today. We're not going to get past verse 27 today. Look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the focal point that Paul has been leading us to in these three chapters. This is it. This is his main point. He has, been, he has had a great overwhelming burden for them because of their great sin, because of their transgressions. But the time will come when Israel will be saved. The transgression of Israel is not a permanent situation. Again, remembering that this is the nation that we're speaking of. This is not saying that every single individual Jew will be saved. And it is most assured that many Jews died in Paul's day without ever knowing the Lord, just as many do today. But the nation of Israel will once again be restored to that place of favor with God, and they will be grafted back into that tree. So he starts off saying in verse 25, For I do not want you to be... For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed. And so the word for tells us that this is tied into what he has previously said. And this is what we found in verses 11 through 24. As he explained the current relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles during this present time. Right now, the Gentiles are in the place of favor and blessing. But Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about what that means. The King James Version uses the word ignorant here. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about this. The language suggests that this is something of great importance. Knowing what God's plan is for Israel is what he's talking about here. You have to get this. You have to know this. And we do sometimes think that there are areas of the Bible that aren't as important for us to know. Sometimes we look at Scripture and we say, well, the prophecies may be Old Testament history, minor prophets. Many times these are areas in our minds that take a back seat to the Gospels, they take a backseat to the Old Testament letters. We don't spend as much time studying those things. But when we don't understand the Word of God in its entirety, we're uninformed when it comes to what He's going to reveal to us, what He wants to reveal, what He has revealed to us. We go about in an uninformed state, and we're content to stay there, knowing what we know, what we're comfortable with, and staying in our comfort zone. I've got this area of knowledge that I have, and that's good enough for me. Well, it's our responsibility to be informed, to know what God has said to us. We need to be an informed people. Many Christians talk about wanting to hear what God has to say to them. They, they complain, I don't know what God's will is here. I don't know what God, I need God to speak to me. But he has spoken to us in his word. They want to find answers to questions that they have, but they don't want to read their Bibles to find out what he's told them. Or they want a piece here and there, 
but they don't want to take the time to figure out the whole thing and see how these pieces fit together. When one of my kids was in school, I think he was in maybe middle school, junior high, he had a Spanish class and he had a habit of asking me for help with his Spanish homework. I had taken Spanish when I was in high school many, many years ago. And I didn't remember much of it, but I could at least help him along with it sometimes. So I had a familiarity with it. But what bothered me about it when he would ask me about it was that I would find that he'd have these questions, but he didn't bother to look for the answers himself. Oftentimes I'd ask him, did you look in your packet for the answers? Teacher would always give him a packet that had all the lesson in it, and then he would have homework from that. And he would just, the packet would still be in his backpack. And I'd ask him, did you look at your packet? And he said, yeah, it's not in there. And so I would say, okay, let me look at the packet. If I find the answer in the packet, I'm not going to show you what it is. I'm just going to say the answer's in the packet, and then you can go find it. And he hated that. He hated when I would tell him that that's what I was going to do. And more often than not, I would find the answer in the packet that he had. It would be right there. And that's how many believers treat the Word of God. They want the answers. They want to know what God is saying to them. But they don't look to see what's in the packet. What's in God's Word. They go out and try to find people who can answer their questions. Who, when most of the time the answers they're looking for can be right in his word if they just spent the time to study it. People today want to know about the church. What, what is the church's purpose? What is the church's priority? What does God have in store for me? What does the future hold for us as a church? What should we be doing? But without the proper perspective on God's chosen people, on his promises and covenants with Israel, we're functioning in ignorance because that's what it's hinged on. For this reason, Paul wants his readers to be informed. Don't be uninformed, brethren. What does he want them to be informed of? Informed of this mystery. Now, we see the word mystery here. This isn't a mystery as we often think of it, right? We have a tendency to look at a, the word mystery and think, oh, it's a puzzle. It's something that I can figure out, right? Or, or I watch a, a suspenseful movie, a mystery movie, or read a mystery novel, and it's like a, you sit there and you read through it, or you watch the movie and you're trying to figure out for yourself how it's going to end. In Scripture, a mystery refers to something that requires special revelation from God. He is the one that is revealing this to us. It has the idea of something that we would not understand if it weren't for his revelation, if not, it's not something that anyone would ever figure out on their own. The mystery he's talking about here pertains to the salvation of the Gentiles. The fact that salvation has come to, has been offered to the Gentile nations. But before he goes into the details of it, he gives the Gentiles this little word of warning here, tells them why they need to know about this. He says, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. The plan of God, as it involves the Gentiles, needs to be put in its proper perspective. This goes along with what we saw in verses 16 through 24, that Gentiles have no reason to be proud or consider themselves as more important than Israel. This is what Paul was warning against in those verses. Back up in verse 18, he said, Do not be arrogant towards the branches. Those were the 
branches of Israel, the natural branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Verse 20, he said, they were broken off for their unbelief. Once again, talking about Israel. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Whether or not you remain or are cut off from the tree, whether Jew or Gentile, is a matter of your faith. Not position or works or anything else, but you stand by your faith. And what is the resulting attitude that we are to have? Do not be conceited, but fear. A believer is not to be high-minded or conceited, or as Paul says here down in verse 25, not to be wise in his own estimation. But the believer is to have a humility of mind, a proper fear of God, an understanding and respect for his place in God's plan of salvation, his sovereign plan of restoring the world to himself. By understanding these truths, this mystery, this gives us perspective in our salvation and our relationship with God. We have nothing to be proud of in and of ourselves. We were saved in spite of ourselves. We were saved from ourselves. We've read Romans 1, 2, and 3. We were willfully in rebellion against God. We were under His wrath and His condemnation. None of us were righteous. None of us sought for God. For those who are saved, who have been justified by faith in the work of His Son on the cross, we were saved in spite of that. Our boasting is not in us. Our boasting is in the Lord, in His plan, in His work. The world would have us believe that we need to build ourselves up, that we we need to boost our self-esteem, have an improved self-image, right? You hear that all the time, right? Love yourself first. In fact, if you don't agree with that today, people look at you like there's something wrong with you. What? What do you mean? Of course, that's what you have to do. But our focus on worth or image is not to be centered on us. Our image is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Over in Philippians chapter 2, the great chapter on the emptying of Christ, the example that we are to follow in the humility of Christ, what does Paul tell the Philippian believers there? He says in Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. My mind is not to be proud, but to be humble. I'm not the important one. I'm to regard you as more important than me. I'm not to merely look out for my own interests, but I'm to look out for your interests as well. That is the attitude of the believer. When we think that way, where is our pride? Where is our conceit? Where is our arrogance and our own wisdom? It is pushed down beneath everything else, hopefully squished out into non-existence. This mystery that Paul is about to reveal doesn't build up our pride as Gentiles, but it shows our humble situation. So as we consider and understand this mystery, we are to do so with an attitude of humility, to understand where we are in this plan. Now, the mystery of Gentile inclusion into the plan of God isn't unique to what we see here. It's actually seen in other parts of Scripture. Paul will actually mention it again 
in chapter 16. Turn back to chapter 16 for a minute. I don't like going to later chapters because we'll get there in time, but I think you know by now it'll be a while before we get to chapter 16. So I can't tell you how long it'll be before we get there, but it'll be a little while. But in Romans 16, Paul will make, this, make reference to this mystery again. Look at verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Here we see it presented almost as a definition. The mystery is something that was kept secret by God for long ages past, but that he manifests to the world by revealing it through Paul, reveals it in his word to us. One other place where we see this, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. He says a a very similar thing about the mystery there, talking about, um, he uses the same word and he uses it for the same purpose there. Ephesians chapter 3. In the first few verses, he's talking about his obligation to preach the gospel to them as Gentiles, similar to what we're seeing in Romans 11, when he said that he was the apostle to the Gentiles in verse 13. But look now at verse 3. We'll start there. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. So once again, he's talking about a mystery, and he goes on to explain it in verse 4 by referring to this. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister, he says. So you see, Paul being sent to preach to the Gentiles was part of this mystery, not previously known or understood. Why? Why didn't anybody know this? Why is going to the Gentiles such a great mystery? Because God's focus of salvation was never on them before. It was squarely set upon Israel. This is part of the mystery that Paul wants us to be aware of back in Romans chapter 11. The mystery he doesn't want the Gentiles in the church to be ignorant of, but that they also shouldn't be arrogant about. So back in Romans 11, now that we're mentally prepared to be humble, Paul reveals here what this mystery is. He says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is what we cannot understand without the revelation of God. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Hardening, that word hardening, we've seen this before. Verse 7 said, What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That's our word, meaning to calcify or petrify, making something callous or insensitive, having a dull feeling, becoming unable to feel anything. Right? I I joke with my wife about this because I see her taking things out of even the oven sometimes with just her, just her bare hands because she's done it so often that she can do that. And I'm like, I can't do that. What are you doing? You can't do, I can't even take something out of the microwave without, without a heating pad. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't have those calloused fingers that other people have. But that's the same idea, right? That dullness, that, that, that calloused feeling. We talked about this when we went through that section, right? Um, over the time, the callous builds and you can no longer feel anything. Part of the explanation for verse 7 is seen there in verse 8 where he says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. God gave them this spiritual insensitivity. They became unable to respond to spiritual things. It caused no emotion, no feeling within them. Why? Because they'd become calloused. God had given them a spirit of stupor. We saw this concept back in Romans 9 as well, that God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Look with me over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We see this concept there again. And it's also pertaining to the nation of Israel. We get a little better understanding, I think, of it here. In verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3, he mentions the sons of Israel. Then he continues on in verse 14, talking about them. He says, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Israel's condition is that of being hardened, as if a veil lies over their heart, right? You, you get the idea of a, of a veil. When you have a veil over your face, you can't see clearly through it. They are unable to understand even the Old Testament that they should understand, right? They were given the Old Testament writings. Many, is, many Jews had the entire Old Testament memorized, but they weren't able to see it or truly understand it. What is the only way someone can understand the things of God? By turning to the Lord. Sharing the gospel with a Jew can be one of the most frustrating things. Some people... In years past that I've talked to have told me about Jewish relatives that they've had, that they've shared with, and how their relatives just refuse to listen, right? They take the Old Testament scriptures and they say, well, let's go through the Old Testament scriptures together, and they just don't see what's there. They just don't get it. You'd think it would be obvious. You'd think that they would be the first ones that you could say, oh, let me just show you the truth. We, the Old Testament's the same. Let me just show you the truth. Well, Paul here is telling us why it's frustrating. They've been hardened. God has made them insensitive to what they see in Scripture, to the gospel message. Now, does this apply to all of the Jews, everyone in Israel? No. Because back in Romans 11, what does he say? He says it's a partial hardening has happened to them. Not every Jew has been hardened. This is seen by, Paul mentioned it earlier, by Paul himself, by the other apostles, Jews who were saved at Pentecost, and Jews who are saved today. There are Jews saved today. It's just a very small minority of people that are saved today are Jews. But Paul had given them examples earlier in the chapter when he was talking about the remnant, the minority number of Jews that are saved out of the whole. God is keeping some for himself. The question could be asked, if God has given them a spirit of stupor, then why bother? Why bother witnessing to them at all? He's hardening them anyway. So why bother? Well, we see right here why. Because it's not a complete hardening. 
It's a partial hardening. Remember Paul's prayer back in verse 1 of chapter 10 where he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul's the one writing this, and he knows. He's the one praying for them to be saved. He also said in verse 14 of chapter 11, If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul hadn't given up on them. Witnessing to Jews isn't a waste of time. There is a remnant that will be saved, who are being saved, that God is preserving for himself. It is those Jews who will respond to the gospel message. But today, they are the exception rather than the rule. By and large, Israel is being hardened, just not completely. So this hardening is partial. But what else is it? Like we've been saying all along, it's temporary. It is not permanent. How do we know that it's not permanent? Because there's an end date. Paul says here, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It is a temporary hardening for the nation, not a final hardening. There is a time limit placed on it. There is a point in time when they will no longer be hardened. Once again, we see that God is not done with them. They have not been cast off completely for all eternity. We, they have temporarily been partially hardened until a specific point in time of God's choosing. What time is that? When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The word for fullness there carries the idea of numerical fulfillment. It's the same word that we saw back up in verse 12, where he said, Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? This was speaking about Israel. Israel's fulfillment. Here the idea is that the whole earth will be blessed when Israel is fulfilled. This will be again at their time of restoration. When the entire nation is saved and they are ushered into the millennial kingdom, there will not be one unbelieving Jew that enters the kingdom. Not one. As we come down to verse 25, we have the time that we are now in, the time in which the Gentiles are focused upon, the time when God is actively saving Gentiles in the church. We are now in that position of favor. It's easy to see today that this is the case. How many Jews do we have in our congregation? I think I've asked this a few times. I still, I still am not going to ask for show of hands. But I'm going to guess that the majority of us are Gentiles here, not Jews. If we were to go out and count all the members of the body of Christ today, the ratio from Gentile to Jew would greatly favor the Gentiles. Why? Because, as Paul has been explaining in chapter 11, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. But there will be a time when God will turn his attention back to Israel to deal with them once again as a nation. This time will be when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This period, this will be at the conclusion of the church age, the period of time in Acts from, that started in Acts chapter 2 until the rapture of the church, when we will be caught up in the air with him. This is that gap that we talked about, the church age gap. The Old Testament writers, we call it the gap because the Old Testament writers couldn't see it. Why couldn't they see it? It was a mystery. It's the mystery that Paul is talking about. They did not know about this gap. It was a mystery to them. And it is shortly after that time 
that that ends, that the church age ends, that the 70th week of Daniel will begin, and that will be the great tribulation. During that time, God's salvation efforts will once again focus on the nation of Israel. There will be a massive evangelistic effort towards the nation of Israel, and it will be very, very effective. The majority of people saved during that time frame will be Jews. They will be under the most intense persecution that they have ever experienced in their entire history. But there will be many who respond in saving faith in that time. And what about the Gentiles during that time? The tables will be turned. In 2 Thessalonians, when Paul is talking about events during the seven-year tribulation, he says this in chapter 2, verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. There will be a deluding influence at that time so that people will believe what is false, similar to what we're seeing with God hardening Israel today. And I believe that what he's talking about there will apply to everyone during that time, but we know that God will sovereignly select 12,000 from every tribe of Israel to be his missionaries. The 144,000 sealed and protected while they are on earth. And so the tables are turned. Israel will once again be focused upon so that they will be returned to that place of blessing. The natural branches grafted back into the olive tree. And the Gentiles will once again be in the salvation minority. They will return to that spiritual senselessness that they had previously. But now, in this age, we are in this time when the Gentiles are being fulfilled. Those that are turning to God for salvation have primarily been chosen in this period of time from the Gentile nations. And when this number is complete... When the last chosen Gentile has been saved, that will be saved during this time, then that fulfillment will have occurred. Then God's plan of the rapture and the tribulation will go forward. And what will be the end result of that? Where is that leading? We see in verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. This is where God's salvation plan is moving forward. Even the salvation of the Gentiles had what purpose? To move the Jews to jealousy so that they would respond in faith. This is what Paul was praying for in chapter 10, verse 1, their salvation. There there is a process that Israel is going through. It involves being moved to jealousy now. It will involve the time of Jacob's trouble going through the tribulation. It will involve enduring the judgments of God throughout that final week, that seven-year period. And the number of Jews will be greatly reduced by all of this. It is a long and difficult process that God's chosen people must endure, but in the end, they will be fulfilled. They will be a nation consisting of the saved descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those that are left will have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that they will be saved just because they are Jews. That's important to understand. We saw back in chapter 2 that there is no partiality with God. Being Jewish isn't enough. All those who make up the saved nation of Israel will have placed their faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew 24 and 25 talk about the end of the tribulation period when all of this occurs. And even at that time, there will be judgment. At the end of that period, there will be judgment upon Jews that are left. Right? It talks about one will be taken, one will be left. And that language, those are Jews that are being judged. The taken are the ones taken away to judgment, the ones who have not believed. The ones left are the ones saved who will walk into the kingdom of God. So it is still salvation by faith. But those who have believed will be restored and will make up the nation of Israel. All Israel will be saved. I'd be remiss if I didn't take you back to the book of Daniel. Turn back to Daniel with me, chapter 9, where we saw this prophesied way back then, way back in our study of Daniel. I don't know how many of you were here for our study of Daniel, but I like Daniel. I like Romans too. I like them all. I'll just say that. In Daniel chapter 9, this is where the angel comes to visit Daniel. He's, he's, pray, he's praying here for the restoration of Israel. That's how da chapter 9 starts off. That's what he's praying for. He sees the time frame and he says, this is the time when we should be restored to the land. So he's praying for the restoration of the people to the land. And he's told that there's a much bigger picture involved with the nation. Look at verse 24 of Daniel 9. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The end of the tribulation period is the end of that 70th week, right? Remember, the, the weeks here are weeks of years. It's literally 77s. Weeks of years, 69 of those weeks have already been completed. They were completed before the crucifixion of Christ. At the end of that 69th week, the Messiah was cut off. Now the 70th week, which Daniel did not see the gap between 69 and 70. That's what we're talking about here. But the 70th week is the tribulation week. It's at the end of that 70th week. All of this will be true for Daniel's people. Who are Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews, the nation of Israel. We've come full circle with the events that we're seeing in Romans chapter 11. Turn back there with me. Keep in mind here that throughout this entire section, we see a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. There's distinctions here between Israel and the Gentiles. We're talking here about the salvation of ethnic Israel. There are Physical Jews who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Much like we talked about when we were back in Romans chapter 2. When we were in Romans 9. We've referred to John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking to those Jews who say, We're of our father Abraham. And he says, You're of your father the devil. Just because you're descended from Abraham, you don't believe. You're of your father the devil. That doesn't make you a true Jew. You must not only be physically descended from Abraham, but more importantly, you must be spiritually descended from Abraham. Faith, faith, faith is required to be a part of the family of God in any form. Many people use this verse here to prove that Israel and the church are the same. And quite honestly, I don't see how anyone who has read this entire section can come to that conclusion. There is clear distinction made at all times in these chapters. What a glorious plan that God has for Israel. 
Paul goes on in verse 26 to prove his point with some Old Testament quotes, right? That's what he's done throughout this section. He's been using these Old Testament quotes. And the first one is from Isaiah 59, where he says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. The salvation of Israel is found in her Messiah. This is what this quote is referencing. The deliverer is the Messiah who rules from his throne in Jerusalem. This is the picture that we have here, salvation coming from the King, from the Messiah. Psalm 14.7 says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Their salvation is found in their restoration coming from Zion. This is the time again of the second coming of Christ, when he will return to establish his earthly kingdom, and at this time, Israel will be restored. What else happens? It also says he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is more than just a physical deliverance. This will be a time characterized by their spiritual, spiritual deliverance. As we saw with the salvation of the nation, as we just saw a few minutes ago with Daniel chapter 9, there as well, right? At the end of that 70th week, transgression is finished. An end of sin, iniquity is atoned for. Everlasting righteousness has come in. They will be a saved nation. Verse 27, he says, This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has established covenant promises. He, with, first with Abraham, with the patriarchs, Israel's forefathers. And we talked about that last time again, with the blessings flowing out of these covenants. Paul will mention the special relationship because of the patriarchs, because of the fathers again, when we get into verse 28, which again, not today, but next week. This is the realization of the covenant promises with Israel, that their sins will be taken away. Paul could have taken this verse from a number of places, a number of references that this is stated, but look with me back at Jeremiah chapter 31. Turn with me back there. Jeremiah chapter 31 is the, is the chapter on known as the chapter on the New Covenant. We see the New Covenant here. I just want to point out while we're turning back here, when we talk about Israel's sins being taken away, that does not mean that God is just saying, oh, I'm just going to erase your account. No, they're coming in saving faith, right? Sin is removed because all those going into the kingdom, like I mentioned before, are saved. They're saved. They have come to saving faith in Christ. But look at Jeremiah 31. Turn back here with me. Um, Jeremiah 31, look down at verse 31, where it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here's the new covenant, right? This is a covenant that's going to replace, that, that replaces the Mosaic covenant, which was a conditional covenant that could be replaced. Right? We talked before about conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. If you do this, then I will do this, God said. But Israel failed to do their part. But this new covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant, is an unconditional covenant. And we see this in the next verses, verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Look again what he says there in verse 34. They will all know me. Who is it that will be saved here? Who is he talking about? All Israel. He's talking about all Israel. They will be a nation that knows the Lord when this is fulfilled. And their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be taken away and never remembered. They will have come to saving faith. Israel Israel will be restored as God's people. Look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel from, for all that they have done, declares the Lord. We've looked at this portion before. How sure are these promises of God? They are absolutely guaranteed. There is no way that they can be broken, that Israel will not experience their own fulfillment. That is the point of verses 35 through 37. Israel will enter into this covenant with God. This is the same covenant from which even we as Gentiles, as part of the church, partake of these blessings. The privilege of enter into this covenant blessings through faith in the Son, through the Messiah. Is this covenant made with Gentiles? No, it was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he said in verse 31. But remember, we are the wild olive branches that were grafted into these blessings. The provisions of this new covenant are applicable to us through the offspring of the salvation made possible through the blood of the Jewish Messiah, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It took the blood of Christ to bring us to the point where this was a possibility. This is amazing stuff. This is absolutely amazing in the sovereign plan of God. Israel will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The picture will be complete. God's plan will bring this about. Turn, turn over to Zechariah chapter 12. This is the last place we'll go today. But I want you to look at Zechariah 12. When their Messiah first came, when Jesus was here the first time, and he was presented before the people, what was their response to him? Crucify him. Right? He's presented in front of the people. Crucify him. That's how they treated their own Messiah. Crucify him. Now in Zechariah 12, in the prophecy of Zechariah, as Jesus Christ, their crucified Messiah, comes down to deliver them from their enemies at the time of the tribulation, we see that their response will be to him in verse 10 of Zechariah 12. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Israel will recognize their mistake and weep bitterly over the Son of God, over their own Messiah. What a miraculous change that will be brought about by God's perfect sovereign plan. Praise God that he has a plan for Israel. Praise God that he has a plan for us as well if we've responded to his gospel in faith. Then our salvation is secure. The covenant blessings through Christ are ours forever, and we will worship and praise him for all eternity. And we will spend eternity with him uh, forever, eternity. Let's close in a word of prayer for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to be in your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you for just the plan of salvation that you have uh, set in motion. We thank you, Lord, for, uh, for your son. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice uh, that he made on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for just the, uh, the knowledge, Lord, that we have that uh, by, by believing and putting our trust in that act that, that you have done on our behalf, Lord, that, that we can have salvation. We pray, Lord, that, that as we go out from here and as we share the gospel with people, that you would just help us to understand that, that Lord, this is so much bigger than just us. It's so much bigger than, than me and my salvation. It's so much bigger than uh, just another person's salvation, Lord. But this is your plan for the world, that this is your plan of how you restore people and how you bring about salvation. And, and Lord, we just thank you so much for just ultimately all, what all these things entail. We just pray, Lord, that as we continue to study through Romans, that you would give us further understanding into these truths and that you would just help us to just live our lives for you, Lord, just to glorify you, Lord, in awe of your sovereign work in the world. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.